The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians in chapter 6, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We never finished last week's message on fathers and what it means to be a godly father, so we will pick that up and carry on this morning. But let's read, just for the sake of context. I'm going to read chapter 6 down to verse number 9. And this is the word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, the Bi- verse 1, sorry, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's again ask for God's blessing, shall we? Loving Father, as we come this morning with the word of God open before us, Father, we pray that the spirit of God would have great freedom to speak to all of us, that we would hear your voice. Father, we would hear your words of comfort and words of rebuke. And Father, we would be strengthened and encouraged and spurred to go on and live our lives for you, imitating you as beloved children. Father, for the one in this room, the one or two that do not know you, have never come to faith in Christ, Father, we ask you that they would be moved by the Scriptures to trust in you, to know what it is to be truly saved and set free from death and sin and hell. And Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have remembered a couple weeks ago we've talked about the extended logic chain that drives all of Paul's thoughts and his commands in regarding the different relationships, whether it's husbands or wives or children or fathers or slaves or masters and so on. And that logic chain goes all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 1. So if you notice there, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. And then he says a little further down, 
Uh, in verse number 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he talks a little further down about being filled with the Spirit and so on. And then he begins to give us these specific commands about how we are to live as men and women in the new community of faith, as Christians in different relationships. He tells the wives in verse 22 to be subject to their own husbands. He tells the husbands in verse 25 of chapter 5 to love their <clears throat> sorry, to love their wives. And also he says in verse 1 of chapter 6 that children are to obey their parents. And then he says in verse 4 that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we have been saying for the last couple of weeks that in living out these new relationships, in living as wives subject to husbands and husbands loving their wives and children obeying parents and fathers raising their children well, what we are doing in each of those things is we are being imitators of God as beloved children. The point is, from all of Ephesians, take the whole book together, the first couple of chapters unfold and explain to us how we are now new creatures in Christ. Everything has been made new. Everything is different. So how we to live should reflect that massive difference. And so one of those things is how we live as fathers. Last week was Father's Day and we got started. We looked at the greatest example of fatherhood, which is God himself. And I'm going to recap that in just a minute. And then I want to go through and unpack what he means by do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There is a little note sheet, little light blue sheet in your bulletin there. You can follow along with that. And there's a couple of spots to fill in with a pen if you'd like to, or you can just listen as you choose. The message in a nutshell is simply this. Fathers, let's imitate God our Heavenly Father, in loving and teaching our children well, loving and raising our children well. Now, I want you to notice something else here. If you look on your bulletin, on the front page, I like to find little graphic things on the front page to put on there just to kind of reflect the message. I love this one, except for one thing. It's got one inaccuracy. Can anybody tell me what's the inaccuracy of the verse and the way it's quoted on the front there? One word is wrong. Very good, Hannah. The word should not be parents. It should be fathers. Because in the original language and in most uh, new English language translations, we'll say fathers do not provoke or do not exasperate your children. But for some reason, whoever created this decided to change it to parents. That's not what it says. This responsibility that Paul is pointing out, it's directly for us as fathers and the need for fathers to raise their children well. I wanted to point that out to you so you didn't miss it. Now then, the greatest father of all, on your note sheet there, number one, going to recap quickly what we talked about last week. God is our heavenly father. Well, how is it that God became our Heavenly Father? Well, first of all, we know from Scripture that God, our Heavenly Father, created us for His glory and His enjoyment. Our Heavenly Father has caused us to be born again. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 3, He caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. Our Heavenly Father has adopted us into His family. And just like any other adoption, it can never be broken. 
And we are adopted as his children in his family. Our Father in heaven has given us the right to become his sons and daughters to those who believe in him. So those of us who trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given us the right to become his children, his sons and daughters. How does then our heavenly father relate to us as his children? Our father loves us. How, what's the verse saying? First John chapter three, uh, behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of the living God. In other words, the greatest gift that God could give us, the greatest expression of love is that we could be called his children. Our heavenly father is shaping us like a potter with a clay. I love the way a potter does it. He just moves with slow, gentle pressure and he coaxes this pot up out of a lump of clay, a beautiful, graceful pot. He doesn't smack it and slam it and shove it. It wouldn't work. It's gentle, careful pressure. Our Father shapes us like a potter with clay. Our Father has compassion. We were singing just a minute ago about the compassion of God. He has compassion on us. He comforts us. Our Heavenly Father comes alongside like no other father, and He puts His arm of comfort around us. He cares for us. It's so sad to see a father that abandons and neglects his family and he doesn't care what happens. He's more interested in other things. But our Heavenly Father cares for us like no other father can. He hears and answers our prayer. It's something sweet to see a father sitting down on his knees and maybe listening to a little child talking to him. And there is a relationship there. The father hears and answers and speaks a little child. Our Heavenly Father hears and answers our prayers. Our Father corrects and disciplines us as a father with a child. We have all been there, both as physical children of physical fathers receiving correction and discipline and instruction from our parents, or as my teacher used to say, they applied the board of education to the seat of understanding, and I got the point, right? <laughs> it hurt. But our Heavenly Father also corrects and disciplines us. Why? Because He loves us and cares for us and wants to shape us into the image of Christ. He has given us an inheritance. Our Father is concerned about our future. And He has blessed us with an inheritance unlike anything this world can even imagine. And beyond all that, our Father, I'm going to repeat the same point before, our Father has given us the right to become His children. If you don't know God... If you don't know what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have God as your heavenly Father, that can be yours. You can know what it is to walk with and know and love God, your heavenly Father, as your Father. You can have that relationship unlike any other relationship. He has given us the right to become His children who believe on Him. Now then, back to our text. That was the example of God our Heavenly Father. Now in our text, Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice there's first of all a negative, do not provoke, and then there's a positive, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we'll take them both one by one and just unpack them so we understand uh, what Paul is saying. Love your children by not provoking them to anger. What's the main concern? It's not the concern here is not actually the anger part. His main concern is actually the provocation. Paul has addressed his comments earlier in verse 1 to the children. He says, you children obey your parents. 
And now he turns and he looks up as he will up to the level of a father. And he says, you fathers, he addressed them, do not provoke your children to anger. And his concern is the provocation. A child's anger is not the main issue here. A child may become angry at being rightly and fairly and justly punished for a wrongdoing. They get angry because they got caught and they got in trouble. That's not the issue. By the way, fathers, if your children become angry when you discipline them, do not allow them to do that. That is an ungodly, sinful anger and needs to be very carefully dealt with. What is it point here? What is the issue here is when a child has a legitimate, righteous anger at something, you say, how is that possible? Well, first of all, what is anger? Anger is a legitimate, righteous uh, defense mechanism at something that is unjust. So when you see something in the news media, like you read about a homosexual marriage or something, and there's something inside of us that goes, ooh, that just makes me angry. There is a sense in which that's right, because it's right for us to become angry at things that are unjust and unfair. Anger is a defense mechanism that allows the human body to respond to danger or physical attack. Uh, when somebody was attacked physically with weapons or with fists, that anger, that increased blood pressure and increased heart rate and that heightened sense of awareness as you get angry enables you to defend yourself. It's a natural thing built in. It's also a natural conscious, conscience-driven response to injustice. Something you've got to hang on to here. What is anger? Is it sin? And the answer is not necessarily. For example, we know that God becomes angry and God does not sin. So when the Bible says in Isaiah 12, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. God is angry at us because we sin. And sin is injustice against God's word and God's will and God's command. Anger, sorry, sin is an injustice performed against God. And God has the right to be angry at that. And pray God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, his anger has been turned away and he's no longer angry with us. God's anger against a sinner is not sin. It's righteous and holy. Jesus himself became angry. You may remember the story. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, all those guys are always trying to get Jesus. And one day they go into the synagogue and there's Jesus there. And they, they come in there and there's a man with a withered hand. is all kind of crunched up. And they push him forward, and Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand. And he looks around them, and the Bible says, as he looked around that synagogue room, he was angry at them. Because he knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to trip him up and catch him in performing a miracle in healing that man on the Sabbath, which they thought was against the law. But he healed him anyway. Jesus became angry because what they were doing was wrong. It's not necessarily a sin to be angry. But when anger takes a vent or takes a form like uh, fighting or abuse or something else, it can become sin. And that's the issue there. So it's something else to remember here. Paul's saying, do not provoke your children to anger and so on. He's, children are born in sin. We know that to be true. They're born with an inherent ability to commit sin. They're also born with an inherent ability to hide their sin, right? 
I don't have to show you again, but you all know, little kids, they get caught with something they're not supposed to have, and what do they do? Put it behind their backs, right? Or they try and put it in their mouth, and, you know, Irish brown cookie, you know, it's all in their mouth. They try to hide it. That very same drive inside a child that says, hide your sin, is the very same drive that conscience that says, that's wrong, that's right. So when you take a little child and you give a little child a beautiful toy, right? Like give a little boy a bright red shiny fire truck or some or a transformer or whatever the kids play with these days, and you get, and he loves that little toy and he's so he's so in love with it, he hangs onto it. You go up to him and you say, "Here, take it away from him." And what happens, right? Like all of a sudden the sound barrier is broken as this little boy's voice just screams in protest and he wails. And someone's favorite toy got taken. And if he can speak, he might stammer out these words. That's not fair. Right? What's he doing? He's appealing to a higher level of right and wrong. Built into him is an ability to understand that's right, that's wrong. Sadly, because of sin, a person will understand what's right and wrong, but they will never be able to choose properly for the good. They'll always choose the wrong. Why do kids always steal? Why do little babies, no matter how young, well, not how young, but as they get a little bit older and they can walk and talk, why is it that they lie? Why is it they stand in defiance? Because their understanding of right and wrong is there, but they constantly choose for the wrong. So a child is born with an inborn conscience that says, that's not fair. That's not right. And here's the point that Paul is making. He's saying, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't arouse in them a righteous indignation at something that's not fair. And you say, how is it that we do that? What is it causes the anger that is provoked in them? Well, the Bible actually gives us a couple of illustrations, a couple of examples there. From Genesis 25 and verse 28, there is the injustice of favoritism. That provoked anger and jealousy of Esau and Jacob. Uh, Genesis 25:28 says this. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Two parents, two kids. One loves the other. One loves the other one. So they're not both being loved equally, and there is a favoritism between those two boys. Remember in, in uh, Isaac's going to give the blessing. He says to Esau, go out and catch some food. Make me some tasty stew that I like to eat. And Jacob knows he's supposed to get the birthright. So he goes in there and by hook and by crook and by some lamb's wool and some uh, his mom's good cooking, he makes up a stew and he steals the blessing. That favoritism has provoked an anger in them. Esau, when he realizes what Jacob has done, is furiously angry. Why is he angry? Because Jacob has taken what's not his. God would promise him a birthright blessing in the future, but Jacob has done what's not right. And that favoritism has provoked his kids to anger. How many of us have said, you know, mom loves you more than she loves me? Oh, mom loves her more than... <laughs> See you guys. See, your mom loves him more. It's not fair. My sister, you know, we're she's 50 and I'm almost 49, right? We get on Skype. She's in Canada. You know what she calls me? This is horrible. She calls me the golden hair boy. I said, well, my hair's not gold. It's more gray now than gold. But she says, you're the golden hair boy. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, dad and mom always liked you better. And it's like, no, dad and mom didn't like me better. I just got more spankings. They favored me that way. Maybe that's the only way. 
But that favoritism arouses in a child a sense that that's not right. So fathers, let's be very, very careful when we have our kids that we do not show one favoritism over the other because that will provoke in them a sense of injustice. Dad is not treating us fairly. He's always giving her the good thing and never giving me. I always get the short end of the stick or the fuzzy end of the lollipop or whatever you want to call it. I always get gypped by my parents. That provokes a child to anger. And Paul says, fathers, don't do that. Why? Because our Heavenly Father loves us all equally. Our Heavenly Father deals with us all the same. He pours abundant grace on all of His children. No one of God's children ever gets treated with special favoritism over the others. God deals with us all exactly the same. Don't show favoritism. Second is this, Genesis 42 and verse 4. One of the sad things is that sins of the fathers are often picked up and carried on by the kids. Jacob, sorry, Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. You know what Jacob did? He loved two of his sons over ten other ones. The Bible actually says that in uh, Genesis chapter 42 and verse 4. It talks about how Jacob favored and overprotected Benjamin over his brothers. He knew that his brothers didn't like Joseph and they didn't like Benjamin. So he protected Benjamin. He kept him to himself. When Jacob sent the boys off to Egypt to go and get some more food because they were in, in a famine, he said, no, no, Benjamin will stay here with me. You ten guys go off and get the food. And he favored and he overprotected one. Overprotection arouses in children a sense that it's not fair and it's not right. They feel frustrated. They feel cramped in. That's wrong because children need to grow. They just, they just stretch their wings and learn to fly. What's an eagle do when it teaches his child to fly? Does he go, okay, now first you put your flaps on your rudder and you get your landing gear all sorted out. Then you flap your arms and then you, you know, and you, did you do that with him? No, yeah, eagle does. Boot. And the kid goes out of the nest. Woo, down the thing. And the kid, the eagle's not careless. He just knows that he has to learn maybe by sheer terror of falling at you know, whatever it is, 200 kilometers an hour. And the eagle watches, and then he swoops down and comes underneath the kid and catches him and lifts him up again. He doesn't overprotect him. He knows he has to get out of the nest. A, a caterpillar, right? You know the story about a caterpillar, how it becomes a, a butterfly, right? Gets in a cocoon. You imagine if the mummy caterpillar was like, oh, don't worry, sweetheart, I'll cut you out. And started cutting out the cocoon. What would happen to the caterpillar inside, the butterfly? It would die, right? Because he knows that he'd just fall out and he would never develop the strength of his wings to fly. You say, these are silly illustrations. You're right, they are silly. But here's the point. When we overprotect our kids, our children, it's a sense of injustice. How come he never get, has to do this? Or how come I don't get to go like all the other kids? And how come I don't get to do this or that or the other thing? And there's a sense in which of injustice that I'm being inhibited and prohibited from doing what I ought to be able to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't take this too far either. You know, your kid wants to grow up, so you open the front door, boot him out, and change the locks. That's not overprotection or lack of overprotection. That's foolishness. There's wisdom here. But what we're doing is we're being careful to raise our children so that they're not provoked to anger by the way in which we treat them. We don't overprotect them. I, I gotta tell a story. 
another one. Uh, we had friends, uh, family, no, not this church, no one near here. And uh, little girl, uh, whenever mom was around, she just had this constant look of, oh, how are you doing? Oh, not so good. You sure you're okay? Oh, no. And I asked her one day, I said, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I, I think I'll make it through the morning. Seriously? And this kid's healthy, right? Nothing wrong. And I realized that mommy was so protective of a little girl that from a young age, that little girl had been trained with the idea that unless mommy was right beside her, giving her everything and helping with every single step of the day, she couldn't make it through. A few years later, I went by the school where this little kid was playing, and I saw the little girl with her friends, and mommy was nowhere near. And that little kid was running around and roughhousing and having a good time. And you know what mommy had taught her? When mommy's around, mommy will do everything for her. And so when mommy was around, oh, she wasn't going to make it. All right? Kids aren't stupid. <laughs> Everybody's laughing, knows they got kids. They're not stupid. They, they read you really quick. And one of the ways we can provoke our kids to anger is by overprotecting them and dealing with them in a way that's not fair and not just, dealing with one child different than the rest, so that other children go, wait a minute, why is he always getting this? Why is she always, why do I never have to? Why do I always have to? You hear those arguments from your kids. And sometimes they use them against you, but sometimes there's a legitimate anger that says it's not fair the way you're treating me. And Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't overprotect them. Don't favor them. One more thing, the injustice of neglect. The whole book of First and Second Samuel is all about parents and children. You can track it all the way through. What's to start off with? Hannah and Samuel. What next? Eli and his sons. What's next? Samuel and his sons. What's next? Saul and his sons. What comes next? David and his sons. And all the way through, there's a pattern that's established. Eli, Eli neglected his sons. And the Bible says he failed to restrain his sons. He let them do whatever they wanted. You know what they were doing in the end? They're sleeping with the women who serve in the church, literally committing adultery and fornication. And Eli went to restrain them, and they refused to listen. They had developed a habit, a pattern of refusing to listen to their father. He had neglected them and failed to restrain them. God judged Eli, and God judged the sons. Remember the story? Philistines come attack the people of Israel, and what they do? They go and get the Ark of the Covenant. That's our God, right? So they put on their shoulders, they go marching into battle, and God is angry. In the one day, the sons or two sons are both killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, and Eli is so old and fat and heavy, he's sitting on a chair by the roadway. And when he hears the story, both your sons have been killed... He's, he's saddened. But when he hears the Ark of the Covenant of God has been captured, he falls backwards off his chair, his neck breaks, and he dies. He was judged because of his neglect of his sons. David neglected his sons. Samuel failed to raise his sons to walk in the ways of the Lord like he did. David neglected his sons. He never restrained Absalom. And Absalom became a rebellious son that eventually despised his father and took over and rebelled and took the kingdom and was eventually killed. You know how he was killed? Who remembers the story of Absalom being killed? Go ahead. Well, yes, right? The hair. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. Mine's too short. His hair, right? 
Every year he would let his hair grow full length, beautiful black raven Jewish hair, you know, and they would cut it all off and they would weigh it. And it was so thick and heavy, it weighed so much. You know how God destroyed him? He was riding his mule trying to get away from the other army. He rode underneath a thicket and the idea was his hair got caught in the branches and yanked him off of his mule and he got left hanging there in midair by his hair. And God hung him up by the thing that was the source of his pride. And Joab come along, took three spears, and one, two, three, through his heart, killed him. David failed to raise his sons. He neglected them. He did not discipline them and train them. The Bible says he never said to them, what are you doing? He never questioned them. And one of the ways that we can provoke our children to anger is to neglect them. The Bible's not wrong when it says that discipline displays the love of a father for a child. And when we neglect them, they sense that lack of love. They sense there's no boundaries that keep me in. There's no boundaries that keep me safe. Paul is saying, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. One of the ways that we as fathers can provoke our children to anger is to neglect them. We fail to spend the time with them. Fail to give them the attention they need to walk alongside of them and encourage them and be with them. we got a bit of time. One of the things I'd love to do when I have a chance is to do a study on the, in the effects of the Industrial Revolution on families and churches. In the Industrial Revolution, what happened was fathers were taken out of the homes, out of the farms, out of the family trade businesses and put into factories and mines and so on. And the father was absent from the home. Prior to that time, a young boy would grow up and he would go out and his father would be a farmer. So what happened, as soon as he could walk along, he would be with his daddy in the fields doing what he could. When he got a bit bigger, as soon as he was old enough, he would go and help plow and help sow the grain and help reap the, the, the harvest and all that. And they would walk side by side. A carpenter would work with his father in the shop. And the little boy would learn what it was to the, for the shavings to come off the plane and the wood chips off the chisel. And he would learn to work alongside of his father. And they would spend hours together. And the father would raise and teach and instruct and train his son, the next generation. The women also. Girls working with their moms, learning the skills about being a mothers and wives in the home. And the Industrial Revolution took all the parents out of the home and plunked them in factories, and kids were left to themselves. We're seeing the backwash that now as all of the culture, the society has so changed that fathers are no longer with their kids, their children. They're absent and it is so important for us. Dads, listen, we're all in the same boat here. There's pressures from work. There's pressures from here, there, and everywhere to keep us away from our kids. That's so critical. And Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. And children are provoked to anger when they sense an injustice, when daddy is not there. That provokes kids to anger. And you see it all the time, right? I remember... Uh, going away on a trip and coming back and coming back and there was some kids there and they were acting out. Why? Because they were mad that daddy went away and they were going to get daddy's attention. They couldn't get it by being good. So you know how they got it? By being bad. And then they got my attention. Not the right way. And that's not their fault. No, I, I don't allow my kids to disobey. That's wrong. The Bible makes it very clear that. 
But my kids were angry at the injustice of the neglect that had been given to them because dad was too busy with something else. Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. We're all recognized, fourthly, the discouragement of our children can provoke them to anger. They see our failure to encourage them as unjust. Fathers, let's encourage. I could say so much more about that, but I won't for the sake of time. Fathers, let's encourage and spur our children on to accomplish what they're able to accomplish. In one sense, the greatest blessing we have, guys, in our lives, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save us, aside from our wives who God has given and blessed us with to raise our family and enjoy together in that special intimacy of husband and wife, the greatest blessing that our God has given us is our children. And He has given them to us as incredibly gifted and talented with great potential. And it's our jobs to get alongside them and encourage them. The Bible says... Train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That does not mean, by the way, about train them up in discipline instruction. It's actually something slightly different. It means recognizing in your child certain traits and certain bents and certain abilities that they have been blessed with, and then training them so that they use that ability. One of my sons, God bless him, math is not his thing. So if mom and I decided, well, you know what, he's going to be a mathematician whether he likes it or not, and we start drilling him with times tables and mathematics and algebra and calculus, drive him crazy. He wasn't wired that way. But he's got an incredible ability to assemble things from complex diagrams and drawings. Can't add up to save his life, but he can put things together. So we work to train him up in the way he should go. My other sons, one is tremendously musical. So we do everything we can, push guitars on him, push piano on him, get him in the music thing, because it's that's the way God wired him. My other son is incredibly artistic. They're all artistic, actually. And we say, hey, draw, paint, do whatever. Use your skills and your abilities and talents for the Lord. It's recognizing their abilities and training them up and encouraging them to develop to their full potential. And we stop and say, you know what? You're not going to do that. You're going to be a lawyer whether you like it or not. I don't care how, how artistic you are. That crushes them and stifles them. That will arouse an anger in your child. It's not fair. God wired me to do this, not that. And Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's the last point. Love your children by teaching them well. Paul commands that we are to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Literally, the text, if you expand its full meaning, means this. Nourish and care for them until adulthood by training, educating, instructing, and admonishing them. In other words, there they are, all the potential, a little tiny child. And so we nourish them. We feed them. We make sure they're provided for physically and emotionally and spiritually. And we raise them up. We train them. We teach them how to do the things they need to know, to know and do to live in life. Right? It's the husband. By the way, in verse 29 of chapter 5, it says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. That's speaking about husbands when they're wives. Husbands, nourish and care, care for your wife. Over here it says, fathers, bring them up. It's the exact same word in the Greek. 
It literally means nourish them. So just as surely, fathers, as if we have a responsibility as husbands to nourish and care for and make sure our wives are provided for emotionally and spiritually and physically, so we are also with our children to nourish and care and provide for our kids to make sure they're able to live in life. It's a husband and father's responsibility to see to it that his wife and children are cared for and provided for. Fathers, we are to imitate God by caring for and seeing our children grow up physically and emotionally and spiritually. Let me emphasize this just for, just for a sec. It is the father's responsibility to provide for his family physically. The Bible says this, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It is dad's responsibility. The father and the dad in the home, it's his responsibility to provide for his family physically. It is the father's responsibility also to nourish and care for his family and children. In Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us that our heavenly father cares for us and provides for us. Paul's positive point is that the father are to nourish and care and provide for their own children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we went through this a little bit last week, but I'm just going to cap it again quickly. Genesis 18, 19, God is speaking, and he says, For I have chosen him, this is Abraham, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God chose Abraham to command his kids. Listen, dads. God chose us to raise those kids. We need to think about that. It's not an accident that you got those kids in your home. It is not a mistake. It is not some unjust form of punishment for something you did wrong years ago. It is God's blessing and God's choice that you have been provided with those kids. And God has given you the tremendous responsibility. I've chosen you, Dad. Chosen you that you may command your children, your household after Him to keep the way of the Lord. I said this last week. I want to say it again. Listen, dads. The way our kids relate to us is the way they'll learn to relate to God. That's why not provoking them to anger, not neglecting them, not favoring, not overprotecting, not discouraging, but encouraging our kids is so important. Because the way they see us is the way they'll see God. Think of it this way. You're like a lens between them and God. And when they look up towards God in their younger years, they see you as their heavenly father. Sorry, they see you first. Eventually, as they're taken out of the home, they grow up and have homes their own. They'll learn to relate to God. And the way they related to you is how they'll learn to relate to God. In a sense, being in a home is a practice run, a trial one, young people, for how you relate to God. How you relate to your dads is how you relate to God. The respect you show for your dads or the lack of it is eventually the respect you'll show for God or not. And dads, how you respond to that is how they'll learn how they're supposed to relate to God or not. So critical. It's so important. 
God chose Abraham to command his children. God chose us as dads. We're to raise them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of Deuteronomy. We looked at it last week, but I want to look at it again and reemphasize it for us all. By the way, do not for a split second think that I got it all figured out as a dad. You have an honest conversation with any one of my three sons, and they'll tell you he doesn't get it all right. I make mistakes. And I struggle with parenting and being a father just as much as any other father in the room. And studying through this has been a rebuke to my own heart just as much as I want to be rebuked to yours. And encouragement also that we can do this. God has given us this tremendous responsibility to raise our kids well for Him. It's not beyond the scope of doability. He's given us the Word of God and the Spirit of God to dwell in us that we might raise our kids well. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 The Bible says this, down to verse 9. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice what the first command is and it's not you shall teach them diligently. That's not the first command. The first command is they shall be on your heart. So dads, Our first responsibility is to know the Scriptures and know the God of the Scriptures that we might teach Him and about Him to our children. Our first responsibility, Dad, is to be in the Lord's presence with the Word of God open before us, spending time in prayer with Him, just like Jesus who got up in the early hours of the morning and went off to a lonely pace by Himself to pray. And He prayed that He might be able to teach His disciples well. I'm convinced of that. And we as fathers have a tremendous responsibility to know the Lord, to love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Why? Just so that we can grow? No, so that we can teach and train and encourage our children that they might know the Lord and walk with Him. First command, it's on your own heart. Second one is this, teach them diligently. It doesn't have to be a two-hour long session. 15 minutes. Sit down with your kids on the dinner table. Open a Bible. We have such fun at our... We don't have dinner together a lot because of the family and because people got jobs and we're going in different directions all the time. But Heather and I work to have a couple of meals together and we open a Word of God with our boys. And I got one kid in, in uh, Bible school and one kid who's been to Bible school and one who knows a little bit about the Bible. And we have a great conversation. We argue back and forth. And sometimes it's funny and fun and sometimes it's serious. And, and we have great discussions around the table with the Word of God open. And it's required of us to teach them diligently. If it's 15 minutes a day, opening and reading the Word of God with them, talking about it, so that they learn to relate the everyday parts of life to the Scriptures. They learn to relate to God in the everyday parts of life and living. Bind them as a sign on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. The Jews, actually, some of you may know, have an actual practice. They take a little tiny wood box and they have a little tiny strip of uh, papyrus in there with a little bit of Word of God written on it. And they actually tie it with ropes and strings kind of things around their heads. And they tie it on the back of their hand and wrap it around their arms and fasten the Word of God to their hand and their forehead. 
they kind of missed the point, although it's kind of a cool illustration. The idea was it was in front of them. Everywhere they went, the Word of God went before them. Everything they did with their hands, it was influenced by the Word of God. That's what Paul, God is saying. So we teach our kids, binding the Word of God to our hands and our foreheads so they see that the Word of God influences and affects everything we do day in and day out. Terrible tragedy it is when our kids, our children, see us disobeying the Word of God that we read, or in my case, claim to teach and preach and believe is true. But Dad, you do that, but you, the Bible says this. That's a way to feel very small all of a sudden when your kids come back at you with that. It's to be a part of our lives, ingrained into our lives, so the way we live, and as we live them before our kids, they see it in us. Let's, keep, let's, let's move on. Let's finish up here. So we teach them diligently. We read the Scriptures to our kids. We explain the Scriptures to our kids. We live it out before our kids. We apply the Scriptures to our children. We correct our kids to bring them into alignment with the Scriptures. And sometimes we discipline them according to Scripture. What about that hot topic of discipline? Corporal punishment. Do we, should we use a wooden spoon or something else to reinforce the instruction of the Lord? Well, this whole point is driven by this. Remember 5 and verse 1 where he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So how does God deal with us? Listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 7. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And you probably heard this one before. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Please don't come up to me and say, that's old-fashioned. You know, our kids are so much modern. It's different now. We don't have to do it anymore. The Word of God is absolutely timeless. And there are times in your home, with younger ones especially, when sometimes the sting of mom's slipper on, the, on that part that was designed for just such things is a good way to reinforce when mommy says no, mommy means no. When daddy says don't, he means don't. I had a, a friend... Well, I still have him really, but he's in Canada and he was young. And um, one day they were out the front of their house playing and he was on his little tricycle riding along. And my other friend was standing there and there were some cars parked on the street. And little Brian came roaring out of his garage on his little tricycle and pedaling like mad down the driveway. And what dad was standing down by the curb and he could see a car coming quickly down the road. And he knew that as tricycle and car were coming together, they were going to meet in a very unfortunate meeting. And he hollered out, Brian, stop. And Brian, and stopped. And my friend who was watching all this said, you know, I realized in that moment the value of discipline. Brian didn't know, I didn't have a clue about the car coming. Couldn't see it, couldn't hear it, wasn't interested in knowing. All he knew was his daddy said, stop. And he knew for an absolute certainty that if he did not stop, the next words might be come here and it might be followed by a very quick smack on the backside. 
And he had learned through discipline to stop when daddy said stop. And it saved his life in that moment. You say, why do we want to discipline? Why is it that, that God makes a deal about this in the Scriptures? Because that sharp discipline that reinforces the instruction of a parent, don't do that, may one day save their lives and will almost certainly teach them about who God is and the pain that comes with disobeying God's commands and instructions. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, raise them, nourish them, train them, teach them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It isn't just not provoking them to anger, it's also teaching them about who God is and what He requires and expects from them. Proverbs 23, 24 says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. God, our heavenly Father, has made us his children. Our heavenly Father loves us and is raising us to be godly men and women who walk and live pleasing to him. God has committed the lives of our children into our hands to portray and display him and his love to them. God loves us. By teaching us His Word. God loves us by calling us to live according to His Word. God loves us by empowering us to live in obedience to His Word. God loves us by never provoking us to legitimate anger. God never favors one of us over the other. God never overprotects us. God never discourages us in a sense of a sinful discouragement. But He always is encouraging us to walk with Him and go on for Him. God never neglects us. God calls us as fathers to love our children as He loves us. Fathers, let's love our children by raising them well, by not provoking them to anger, by teaching them the ways of the Lord. I said it last week, I'll say it again as we wrap up and close. There is a desperate need in the society we live in for godly men. Men to live as men. Men to live before God walking in God's presence, men to fight on their knees, praying for their children, praying for their wives, praying for their families, men to stand up and be men in this society and raise their children well, men to be men that love their wives and live for them and nourish them and care for them and watch over them, men to be men with fathers in the home. I told you the story, I think, last week, and we'll close with this. The uh, prison system decided... On Mother's Day, they get all the prisoners together. There's all these men in the jail cells, these big guys, tattoos all over them. They say, I want you to write cards to your mother for Mother's Day. And surprise, all these guys came out, these great big burly guys. And they're writing, you know, dear mom, roses are red, violets are blue. You know, I'm in jail, but I love you. Or something like that on the card. And they're sending them off to their moms. They got an overwhelming response. And they decide, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do it again. Let's do it for Father's Day. So they put the wood out in the prison system. Hey, we're going to have another day of card writing. You can write cards for Father's Day to your dad. Nobody showed up. That's a tragedy. And you know what it, it told the story of? The fathers had been so absent in the lives of those men in that prison system that nobody cared about their dads anymore. The tragedy is the society we live in is raising a generation without men in the home, without men who love their wives, 
my father-in-law sat me down not long after I married Heather and we had Jonathan's a little tiny guy. And he said, you know what? The greatest thing you can do for your, your son, Jonathan. I said, what's that? And he said, you can make sure that Jonathan knows you love his mother more than anything else in the world. After that, you can raise him and you can teach him and instruct him. That's why Paul says, first of all, husbands, love your wives in Ephesians 5. And then he says, fathers, raise your children well in Ephesians 6. The responsibility, men, listen. It's absolutely imperative that we as men in our home stand up and be men. Be men on our knees fighting for our families in prayer. Be men on our, at our dinner tables with the Word of God open, teaching our children, raising them well for God. What a tragedy it is when our society is raising men that don't know their fathers, that have no desire to live like their fathers, have no desire to know the God of their fathers because their fathers have portrayed so poorly God to their children. But you know what? I want to end on a positive note. We have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God. And the Word calls us to obedience and live for God. We have everything we need. You can say, I don't have this, that, the other thing. I don't have all the gifts. I'm not, I'm not good with kids. You have a Heavenly Father. You have the Spirit of God in you and you have the Word of God in your hands. You have everything you need. The question is, are we willing to take the time and spend the time and use the time to raise our children well that they might walk with the Lord? May God help us. We need the help. May God help us and encourage us and strengthen us to be godly fathers and godly husbands in the home. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing the benediction. Please stand. Loving Father, we come before you again and we give you thanks, O God, that you are indeed our Heavenly Father, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. You have given us your Word. You have provided the Lamb who came and suffered and died on a cross that we might be children, your children, sons and daughters of the living God. Father, we thank you that by believing in Him, we have been given the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. Father, thank you for love, immense love, love unmeasured, that we should be called the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And Father, we realize the tremendous call upon us as men in the home to be godly fathers, to raise our children well, to teach them, to instruct them in the ways of the Lord, to discipline them, Father, to love them, to not neglect them, to not provoke them to anger through favoritism or overprotection or neglect or discouragement. Father, there are so many other things I wanted to say in this message. So much more that could be said. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that every father and husband in this room would go home with a renewed commitment, a renewed zeal to love and raise their children for you, to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, to see their kids and learn to discern what the bents, the natural inclinations in their heart, and raise them
Father, to use those inclinations for your glory, whether it's music or mathematics or, or whatever it is, Father. Father, thank you for the way that you have designed us. No one of us is the same as another. But, Father, all of us have been created and designed with the ability, Father, to glorify you in everything we do once we have come to you, once we know what it is to be saved. Father, I plead with you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work greatly in all of our lives, especially the fathers this day in this room. Change us and make us more like Jesus, we pray. Father, for the young ones sitting here this morning, listen to this. Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Encourage them to encourage their dads. Encourage them to be obedient, to honor their parents, which is a thing that's pleasing to you. Encourage them to see their dads as God's gift, your gift to them. Father, I pray for the families in this room. I pray, O oh God, that you would work greatly, that we would be, this church would be a place where families can come and hear the word of God. Families can come for fellowship and encouragement, can work alongside of each other. Father, we pray again for our Sunday school. We plead with you, O oh God, that you would fill it with young ones, that there would be a great harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for the creation, some little tiny ones in there. Father, we ask you for little Azalea and Silas, Lord. We pray, O oh God, that you'd watch over them and encourage them. Father, may they come to know you as soon as they're able to comprehend what it means to trust God and be saved. Father, thank you for the families that you're bringing. And we ask, O oh God, for your blessing on them especially. Lord, thank you too for the Karen Baptists and their being with us this morning. Father, we thank you that... I pray, O oh God, that it, it would have been comprehensible, that they would have understood the bulk of it. Father, I pray for Shay Lowe as he seeks to lead and pastor that church. Father, we ask you that you would encourage him and strengthen him for the journey. Father, for the young men in that church, we ask, O oh God, you would raise up from that church young men, husbands and fathers that will love their wives and raise their children well. Father, for the young men in this church, Father, we pray that you would raise up from them godly men, godly husbands, godly fathers, that we would see the gospel taught and sent forth, proclaimed well for many years to come, if the Lord Jesus Christ does not come back. And Father, we pray his coming would be soon. But Father, we pray also for the strength to continue the race, to run the race to the end. Father, we ask you that you would raise up another generation in this church that can carry on the work. Father, give us the wisdom and the strength and the ability to let go, to hand the baton on to a new generation, that the gospel would be proclaimed here, that the people would be taught and encouraged, and there would be fellowship of the saints. Father, we cry out to you for this church. We ask again, O oh God, for revival. We plead with you, O oh God, that our hearts would be in love with the Lord Jesus Christ deeply father that we would love each other father having done everything to love one another we would love fervently from the depths of our heart father we give you thanks for all these things we thank you O oh god for the grace that we have enjoyed thank you for the grace that you have poured out on each of us father we ask you these things and we give thanks in jesus name amen, amen.